Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Pentateuch. Now, I gotta say, just from the beginning here, uh, I only left like eight chapters for us to discuss for the third part of Exodus. Um, and on the one hand, I'm worried that that might mean we run a little short today, which I'm not going to be too terribly upset about, let's be perfectly honest. Um, but I also think that the really we're going to zero very closely into the three chapters dealing with the golden calf and everything surrounding that whole debacle. Um, in my opinion, this is one of the most important passages in the entire Pentateuch. Like, don't get me wrong, yeah, I'm not going to try and, you know, undersell the importance of the actual Exodus story that we've talked about earlier. Again, I think this is like the crucial, you know, linchpin moment of the entire Pentateuch. Certainly the foundational moment for the entire, like, Israelite people and, you know, the whole Jewish faith. Um, but I tend to think as far as, like, stuff that gets very much overlooked... Um, in biblical discussion and biblical study, the Golden Calf passage is kind of really up there. Um, in these three chapters, we manage to see a very complicated and important story about sin and forgiveness. Um, the entire, you know, essential issue of the Bible, like literally this book that starts with the fall from grace, you know, the, the fall from, from Eden, like the, the sin of Adam and Eve and the introduction of sin and death into the world altogether, all the way to, you know, the attempted efforts at salvation throughout the Pentateuch and beyond, you know, this, these three chapters managed to get like the entire story pretty carefully encapsulated in just this tiny little narrative. Um, and in the process, we get to see a lot about how God behaves, how God treats his people, and how forgiveness is supposed to work from God's perspective itself. Um, it's a problematic passage. There seem to be some textual issues here. A couple of lines, especially towards the end of, of chapter 32, um, are fairly tricky, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of them. Um, but there are other passages, especially when we actually see God like announce himself to Moses, um, in chapter 34 that are not just abundantly clear, but almost certainly some of the most important passages into understanding God in this entire book. Um, this is God's revelation of himself, even more dramatically than the episode with the burning bush and the I am that I am uh, name that we get. This is very much God showing us who he is, very much prompted by a circumstance that would warrant far harsher behavior than in fact pans out to be the case here. Um, so this is a passage that I actually teach fairly often. Um, like, it's not probably one of the most popular passages that I teach. Certainly it doesn't show up in Love and Friendship. Like, I prefer to use Deuteronomy instead of Exodus for, for that class anyway. Um, but when I usually talk about the nature of God, like in my Intro to Philosophy class, when I teach it more traditionally than it appears in, you know, say, World Wisdom Traditions, um, this is one of the passages that I tend to concentrate on. Because, again, it is very indicative of who God is, what his relationship to people are, how this whole dynamic of God and human is supposed to work. Um, so the basic truths of this story are pretty straightforward. Like the uh, Exodus narrative, like the whole, you know, leaving Egypt business, um, it is one that gets portrayed fairly often. 
Uh, Hollywood loved to include the, the stuff about the golden calf because it gave them an opportunity to shoot, like, large scenes of debauchery and people, you know, getting naked and... Like, the scene of the golden calf at the end of the, the Ten Commandments, for example, is sort of, like, sort of like famously debauched. Um, and, you know, Hollywood loved to use the Bible as an excuse to, to shoot, like, really dodgy material and get away with it. Because, you know, in theory, this was all the Bible and therefore holy and nobody could necessarily raise objection to depicting it. Um, and, you know, that scene is weirdly gratuitous, even in that movie. Like, it's it's just unnecessary for it to be there. It, it sort of interrupts the entire flow of the story to some degree, except for the fact that literally the, the you know, movie is called The Ten Commandments, and therefore it's supposed to, I guess, include The Ten Commandments. Um, but what I want to stress here, like, as much as, as the story is is pretty familiar, like... The actual execution is what's really important here. Like, everyone knows the story of how, you know, the Israelites left by Moses unattended for a little while, create a golden calf, worship it, and get punished for it. But the devil really is in the details. Like, nobody ever seems to focus on the what that punishment actually looks like, what the, you know change of heart going on in God's mind actually looks like. Like, these are really important passages and don't tend to get that kind of attention because it is much more subtle than so many of these stories tend to be. So, first off, we should definitely, like, like, I'm probably just going to end up reading through this whole thing pretty much, so let's just start doing that now. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molding calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Notice the emphasis here. Um, on the first, notice that we are once again in the people are getting restless because Moses isn't there to guide them anymore. Um, much as we talked about last time, where like immediately after they cross the Red Sea and the story just somehow continues, um, we get the children of Israel are immediately like doubting God's sort of protective uh character over them like they're immediately like oh no we're thirsty oh no we're hungry it would have been better for us to go back to egypt and be slaves again rather than you know suffer and die in the wilderness of starvation or, or thirst um and notice that like as much as there is a kind of reasonable uh complaint here like people do need to eat here we're seeing very much the other side of the emphasis these people are weak they are stiff-necked, as God puts it, at least here in King James English. Um, they tend to ignore what is obviously in front of them. They are stubborn and refuse to acknowledge that God is basically teaching them to be different, to trust him rather than trusting their own intelligence or cunning or wherewithal. Like, the entire business of the, of the manna, like we talked about, is an elaborate test, carefully constructed so that God can demonstrate that these people are not going to survive without relying on God first and foremost, that they need God and that God will provide for them. Here, we're seeing very much an unprompted, just 
total lack of faith in God. Like, Moses is up on the mountain getting literally the Ten Commandments, the books of the law, um, all the laws that we talked about before and the instructions about the tabernacle and all that fun stuff. Um, he's up on the mountain, has been there for a few weeks now, and at this point, everybody's gotten so impatient that they're like, all right, we're going to just bail. Uh, we Make us new gods, and those gods will lead us out into, into the promised land. And notice that that's, you know, the way that it's phrased here, that line there, where in verse 4 it says, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The emphasis here is not just that they've made a new god and they're going to trust that god, but that this god that they made is the same god that brought them out of Egypt. Like, they're not just totally disregarding the god that, you know, helped them all to this way. They are literally replacing him. Um, they are ignoring the reality that surrounds them, essentially. Like, notice how absurd that this actually is. Like, they've literally seen this god to some degree. He was, you know, in the cloud that surrounded Mount Sinai. This is the god who has performed these incredible miracles, like, unbelievable feats. This is the god who gave them his name, like Moses was told, you know, I am that I am. Go and tell them that this is the god of, you know, Abraham and Isaac and, and Israel. And notice that the Hebrews, they, they don't care about any of that. Like, they literally make their own god, this golden calf, out of the various gold and silver and precious metals that they brought out of Egypt. And they not just worship it, like, they're replacing him as far as, or replacing, you know, the god of, the actual god of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Um, they're not just replacing him by worshiping him. They're replacing him by saying this, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. All of those things, the, all of those miracles that we saw before, all the manna from heaven, all of that has been done by this thing we just made five minutes ago and not by the God who has literally carried Moses up into the mountain and expects us to trust him. They've essentially substituted this thing for God because it's easier to worship it, because it is simpler than actually trusting the God who is testing them, who is carefully watching them, and who has, in fact, protected and taken care of them up until this point. Um, the other thing I want to emphasize about these four verses is notice Aaron's role here. Um, like, on the one hand, notice that Aaron is kind of passive, like, it is, in fact, the people that come to Aaron and say to him, make us gods. But Aaron does this. Like, he gives them instructions. He says, you know, all right, so break up your earrings, give me your gold, we'll fashion it into a golden calf. And he does, in fact, do this. Um, this is noteworthy because Aaron's going to totally try and dodge the responsibility later. Um, it's worth noting that Aaron, the actual high priest of Israel at this point, like he has been selected by God, like singled out, you know, God communicated with him much earlier in the story and like Aaron comes out to meet Moses and then the two of them together are the ones petitioning Pharaoh. This Aaron is not necessarily a great influence here. Like he seems to pretty much just do what the Israelites tell him, even when this is not at all what he's supposed to be doing. His faith in God seems pretty contingent here. Um, and it's noteworthy, you know, when we were told about, like, the relationship between Moses and Aaron earlier on in this story, when, when God was talking about, you know, how, okay, fine, I'm going to let Aaron help you out on this one, he very much said, you know, 
I will be to you, Moses, what you are to Aaron. Like, Moses will be a god to Aaron, effectively. Um, and it's noteworthy that upon Moses' disappearance, his prolonged vanishing for a couple of weeks, Aaron, left to his own devices, is a crappy, crappy leader. He cannot, you know, instill faith in the people of Israel. He doesn't even try here. Like, again, it's a couple of weeks, and already everybody has just completely lost faith in this god who has visibly, manifestly protected them up until this point. This is in point of fact, an egregious, like, this is not just, you know, oh, like, God has forsaken us, therefore we will find a new God. No, this is a complete reversal of everything that has gone before. The Israelites have heard the Ten Commandments at this point. That is, like, the one part of the law that, you know, we do get that interlude where it emphasizes, you know, Moses does, in fact, bring this to them, um, even if he's still got this tablets of stone that the law is being written on. He, they know that law number one is you will have no other gods before me. There is no excuse for this behavior. This is literally just these people are the worst. And, you know, I don't want to make this out to be like this is all the Jews' fault specifically. Like, for Christians to assume that they could do better in this situation is ridiculous. Um, this is not grounds for anti-Semitism here. This is grounds for the utter failure of human beings to operate according to God's rules. Um, this is very much emphasizing just how lousy people are at even figuring out the basic rules surrounding God's orders and the divine order of things. They totally miss the boat here. Um, and the only saving grace that any of these people have is that when, in fact, they are sort of called out for it, at least some of them do, in fact, own up to it and turn back to God. But, importantly, that's not the majority, it seems. And, obviously, that doesn't make up for the fact that they screwed up this royally to begin with. Um, so the story goes on, when Aaron saw it, the calf that he made... He built an altar before it, and Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now again, the specifics of how they're playing have been embellished by, you know, Hollywood for this, uh, for this particular scene. What I want to stress, though, is what God is going to stress later, how ridiculous this entire scene is, how absurd and irrational it is. Like, again, it's one thing for us to, to note that, hey, you know, they literally made this calf and are now replacing God quite literally with it, saying that it is the calf that led them out of Egypt. The other thing that God very much emphasizes frequently as we go forward in the Pentateuch is this is a made thing. Like, they made it themselves. They know they made it themselves. They literally watched it happen. Aaron literally made the calf with his own hands and then looks at it and worships it. This is utterly nonsense to God. And throughout the rest of this story, we're going to hear how ridiculous it is. Like, there's almost a sense that God can't even believe that these people are this dumb. Like, why would you worship the thing that you made yourself? How can you, you know, create an idol and then worship it? This thing made out of stone, which they crafted with their own hands. That's not how gods work. And I want to stress this. Because 
as much as, you know, this seems manifestly obvious, it's kind of something that people don't recognize, don't remember. Like, not to get too sort of abstract here, but there are a lot of writers and a lot of perspectives and a lot of attitudes. Like, I hear a lot of students especially talking about this idea. Um, but there is kind of this this rumbling in contemporary 21st century culture that gods are empowered by people's beliefs. Um, like, again, I'm not sure exactly where this idea started or, or who is, you know, the primary culprit here. It's an idea that I find fairly frequently in something like uh, Neil Gaiman's work, um, which, again, I like Neil Gaiman. There's a lot of good writing to be found there. His, his take on mythology is often really interesting. Um, but, like, I'm rereading American Gods now, and, and it kind of is a fairly important idea there that, like, gods become more powerful the more people believe in them. Um... And this is not a new idea necessarily, like, there, there have been sort of philosophical rumblings of this idea throughout all recorded history, it's ob obviously a fairly common thing. Um, and it seems like that is the kind of justification that's going on here. Like, as ridiculous as it seems for Aaron to sort of, you know, raise up this calf that he made with his own hands and say, okay, that's our god now, so let's all worship it and it will lead us into the promised land, there is this kind of logic to it, insofar as it's like, okay, gods are gods because people believe in them, therefore when people believe in a god, it becomes more and more powerful and it will help them to do greater and greater things. Um, like, you can find this in Lord Dunsany in the early 20th century, although Dunsany is tricky with it, and I kind of love Dunsany's treatment, because usually this is more about, like, small, broken gods who have long since stopped been believing in, and therefore can only perform, like, cheap, tawdry miracles. I love Dunsany. Like, if you haven't read Lord Dunsany, go read Lord Dunsany. He's delightful. Um, one of the major, major inspirations for, like, George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis and Chesterton and Tolkien, like... He's just so delightful. Um, but when it becomes something systematic, like when I, in fact, talk to students about belief and faith, they usually talk about it in these terms. Like, there's a sort of knee-jerk uh, need to justify some kind of, like, absolute subjectivity or relativism in matters of belief. Um, like, students are willing to say things like, you know, whatever you believe, that's true for you, and therefore, you know, we don't need to question it anymore. We don't need to consider the reality beyond that. And, you know, on the one hand, like, yes, it is true that opinions are valuable to one another, and in many cases you can't sort of navigate between them. But on the other hand, this is just nonsense. Like, this is profoundly ridiculous. Um, and I do not miss any opportunity to sort of, like, disturb and upset the natural instinct to, you know, subjectivity and relativism that most of my students have kind of enshrined. Um, I want to upset that, because I live in a world where believing in something doesn't make it powerful. Like, to some degree it does. If a whole bunch of people online agree to believe in some ridiculous cause, that cause can become powerful, can in fact change the course of elections. Nonsense can rule the day over sense in many cases. But that is a whole different animal from making a god real just by believing in it, or empowering a god according to your convictions. That's just not how god works, certainly not the god of the Bible. And what is very much being emphasized here is 
God is looking on at this and is astonished at the absurdity of the whole thing. Because he is a real being. He exists. He has manifested his existence. He has demonstrated his existence over and over and over again. And belief or unbelief has literally nothing to do with that. God does not stop existing just because we stop believing in him. Nor does he get less powerful when we stop believing in him. And, you know, notice his gut reaction here is kind of bad news for all of the Israelites. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 7, Go get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Like, notice God's reaction here. Alright, I'm just gonna, like, wipe them all out. Like, notice how that is such a powerful refutation of what the Israelites are believing. Like, is in fact, if in fact gods are empowered by, you know, people believing in them, then this could not be possible. Like, God could not just up and just devour the entire nation of Israel, like, just out of the blue. But that is very much what God is threatening to do here. Like, I'll show them, you know, they want to believe in their God. Let's see how their God protects them from me, the mighty creator of the universe, who literally did bring them out of Egypt. And I'm rightly very annoyed at the fact that they are now attributing all of these great deeds to this random thing that they made out of gold. Like... One of, one of the things that I emphasize to my students is, you know, I don't care how much you believe or disbelieve in it. If you get shot by a sniper, you're going to die. Like, bullets are not subject to conviction. And yet you are saying, you know, by saying that whatever you believe is true for you, that somehow the reality and the objective truth of the world around you is irrelevant. Like, if you decide to believe that, you know, it is untrue that, Donald Trump won or lost the election, that somehow makes it untrue. And yet that's just not the way the world works. Like, again, people believing in things can be powerful in the sense that a united group of people can cause great change politically, historically. Like, these are obvious historical truths about the universe. But that stops at ontological truth. At, you know, I can stop the existence of a tree outside my window by ceasing to believe in it. Like, no, that's not how that works. If you believe that the tree is evil, yeah, you can go out and you can cut it down and that will, in fact, like, enact real change on the universe around you. But that requires real action, not a difference in belief or conviction. The idea that the gods of, you know, Neil Gaiman's American gods or, you know, the, the long-lost gods of the pagan world, Zeus and, and, you know, Odin or Amaterasu, can sort of gain or lose power depending on who believes or doesn't believe in them, that's useful in a storytelling capacity. It is an interesting metaphysical... Uh, like hurdle to sort of rub up against especially if you do want to tell a story about the gods that make the world around us uh or the culture around us interesting and powerful like for gaiman it's passable 
but as a conviction that my students carry away from Gaiman and other writers, as a sort of metaphysical truism carried from a storybook into the, the world itself, it's nonsense. If God exists, God is more powerful than we are. That is what we mean by the word God. And I am not saying this as, you know, specifically pointing to the Christian God here. Like, if you believe in the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon of the mythological world, then presumably you believe that they're more powerful than you. That is kind of a prerequisite for them being gods. Homer, Hesiod, they wrote about these gods because they believed that they had more power than the humans around them, that the humans were therefore subject to them, and that their lives could be made complicated or better by these gods' interactions, capricious though they might be. If anything, the Greeks very much saw these gods as being unpredictable and dangerous, and these myths were warnings. Do not mess with the gods, or you will be messed with way worse. That's a presupposition for believing in a god, whoever that god might be. Use a different word if you're intending to talk about something that is somehow less powerful than the humans that are supposedly worshipping them or subject to them. If we are going to talk about gods, we are going to talk about reality. And reality is something that cannot be changed purely with conviction. If, in fact, there is a way to make gods more powerful or to, you know, make them weak or strong or even to kill them in some cases, then that has to be as metaphysically real as the gods themselves. This idea that, like, man is the measure of all things, to sort of bring it down to some, you know, ancient Greek Democritus level, that we make and can unmake gods as we see fit, is a very modern position and very much against the very notion of what a god is altogether. Like, I can't stop my students from believing it, but I can point out how absurd this idea is. Like, as God will say later, you know, why would you even bother to worship gods made of sticks and stones? You have literally created them. How powerful can they therefore be? If you believe that the gods that you believe in, the gods that you made up, are powerful, how powerful could they be if they were entirely the product of your own imagination? How can they possibly be bigger or greater or more powerful than you are? You can't make things that are bigger and more powerful than you are without using the forces around us, without using science, without using technology. Sure, one man can make a bomb that can kill many people, but at the end of the day, you're using the truths of the universe around you to do that. You're not just stopping, you know, you're not just like wishing them out of existence in some way. If the term God is to have any force, if the gods that you worship are to have any force, then they cannot be dependent on us. If they did, they wouldn't be worth worshipping. They wouldn't be gods in any sense of the imagination. And again, like... My students come to me absolutely convinced that there is no reason to believe in any of the gods that we talk about in this class, any of the gods that we that you find in the Bible or in you know mythology or in Hinduism or in any number of different re uh, religious traditions. And again, I think more than anything, my students believe that because it is easy to believe that, because it is a convenient solution. It means that they don't have to worship any particular god, but they also don't have to get in anybody's face about the gods that they worship. But that's the thing. 
I assume that some people are right and some people are wrong when they have convictions, because that's what my experience tells me. I believe that when a whole bunch of people read the newspaper and some of them say this is the truth and some of them say this is false, that some of these people are true or right and some of these people are wrong. That if, in fact, you have, you know, 22 people in a classroom saying 1 plus 1 is 2, but one person says 1 plus 1 is 3, one of these students is incorrect, or at least one of these students is incorrect. Truth is not always subjective. In fact, it is rarely subjective. And the only time that you can talk about truth as being subjective is when you're talking about more complicated human relationships like power, like, uh, like uh, bias. You can't necessarily take conviction and apply it to reality without some pretty important intervening steps. Belief doesn't change the world directly. Action changes the world directly. Belief, when it informs action, can change the world directly, but only through that medium. And this is not, again, some magnificent truth that I feel like needs to be communicated. This is super basic. This is as simple as Aristotle's physics and metaphysics gets. This is kindergarten logic. If you want something, you have to go get it. You can't just wish for it and assume it will come to you. That's kind of as simple and straightforward as things should be able to be. And yet somehow in our adult world, we tend to complicate it. We tend to try and ignore the hard realities around us. Like probably my favorite example of, of a writer sort of confronting this idea is in John Gardner's Grendel. Um, like literally the book Grendel is just a masterpiece in its own right. And I could probably spend an entire lecture series talking about it and, you know, John Gardner's whole thing. Um, but basically the story of Grendel is Grendel the monster telling the story of Beowulf. And Grendel the monster characterizes his world in this same sense of uncertainties and convictions. There is no truth, there is no reality, there are only stories and biases and manipulations and convictions and everything is subjective and I could wish away the world if I wanted to. But then Grendel meets Beowulf in the final chapter and spoiler alert for like literally a thousand year old story, Beowulf rips Grendel's arm off and sends him packing into the wilderness where Grendel dies. In John Gardner's Grendel, this is very much considered an existential confrontation. Here is Grendel's conviction. I do not believe in the reality of the world. People manipulated. Everything is a lie. Everything is untrue. There is no capital T truth. And then Beowulf pushes him against the wall and says, do you feel it? Do you feel the hardness of the wall? Do you feel the strength of my arm as I twist your arm behind your back? Can you resist the truth, in short? Deny the existence of this truth. Deny the hardness of the wall. Like, in the, in the novel, Beowulf literally says, Sing praises to the hardness of the wall. This unobjectionable reality that we find ourselves confronted with. Walls remain hard. Truth remains true. The tree remains a tree. The pain remains pain. Deny it all you want. It does not matter. It is still real. If God exists, 
then it is in that sense of existence, the same sense of existence that we talk about trees and walls and arms and hardness and pain and all of the things that are basically mundane elements in our reality. As much as God is above these elements, as much as he is a supernatural being, something above our awareness and consciousness, if he is real, he is every bit as real as the stars and the earth and the trees and the hardness of the wall you are pressed up against. It is something unobjectionable. And your disagreements, your opinions, your convictions have nothing to do with that reality. If God exists... He is someone we all have to contend with, believe in him or not. And if God doesn't exist, that too is something we all have to contend with, believe it or not. If in fact God exists, then Christians are blessed and they are correct in their convictions and they will be saved and the rest of the world is going to be in a lot of trouble. And if he doesn't exist, Christians are fools and are making a grievous mistake and should have stopped believing in him years ago. And the rest of the world is right not to believe in him. But these are the options. There is no middle ground here. There is no solution that pleases everybody. There is no way to make all of the atheists and Christians at the kitchen table in thanks at Thanksgiving equally happy. Their realities are in direct conflict with one another. And there's no way around that. Either God exists and is powerful and has all of our fates in, our, in his hands, or he doesn't. And that's all there is to it. You can't mediate this. Reality can't be mediated. You can't stop death or a bullet by believing that it isn't coming for you. You cannot just power through the wall. So Beowulf twists Grendel's arm off. Deny that, he says. Believe that didn't happen. It doesn't change the fact that it did. This is what I emphasize to my students. It is so basic as to be difficult to talk about. Like, how do you basically confront the reality of the things in front of you, and yet we do all the time? We assume the world remains consistent. We assume our glasses remain in the cupboard when we leave them and aren't looking at them. We assume that the desks in my classroom don't move when they are left unattended. If you believe that that is the case, then you have to confront God with the same kind of basic fundamental respect. God either exists or doesn't. He is not subject to our whims and inclinations. And the gods we make with our own hands are obviously powerless. To believe anything else is to basically commit to this kind of misanthropic, irrational nonsense. To basically let the irrationality of human interactions define what the rest of the world is for you. Even when that isn't, is obviously not the case. So God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. This is so irrational, so absurd, so nonsensical, and importantly, so disrespectful that this is the appropriate reaction in some way. Like, this is common in Genesis. Like, God seems to be pretty okay with, I am going to flood the world as my solution to the wickedness I see surrounding me. For God to be like, okay, we're going to start from plan B. Like, notice that he even has a contingency plan. I am going to make out of you, Moses, a great nation. Like, 
God's like, okay, we're just going to like treat you as the new Abraham. We're going to wipe out all of your brothers and sisters and cousins and everybody else who I brought out of Egypt. We're going to start from scratch. Moses, you are the new patriarch. Every one of your children, they will be my followers from now on. Probably that'll fix a lot, fix a lot of things. But Moses, notice, rejects this. And I want to emphasize this because this is one of the few passages in the entire Bible where somebody actually picks a fight with God and wins. Moses argues God down here. Like he talks God out of his wrathful reaction. And this is complicated because, you know, again, like Christians want to take this and like add it to their systematic theology. The God who, you know, anticipates all of these moves and therefore God presumably knows what Moses is going to say and doesn't actually change his mind here, even if this is what the Bible is actually telling us. Um, Notice what Moses says in verse 11. Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people." Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidst unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Like, notice, Moses makes a really compelling argument here. Like, God's ready to go with plan B. I'm going to wipe out the Israelites because clearly they don't respect me. I am going to raise out of you, Moses, the great nation that will follow me. They will be the ones that get blessed. They will be the ones that, you know, are the priestly nation unto all others. But Moses says, notice, one, notice your history. Like, this is what Moses starts by appealing to. You saved us from the Egyptians wouldn't it be kind of absurd for you to do that and then turn around and smite them off the face of the earth? Like, wouldn't the Egyptians say, you know, why did you bring them out to begin with? Like, wouldn't all of history essentially turn around and be confused at the conflicting message here? Like, you performed these grand, unforgettable, great, historically rocking miracles that proved your power and authority over all of the other gods, over the greatest nation that has existed in the ancient world. And what are they going to say when all of a sudden it's like, eh, actually these guys were the worst and I'm going to destroy them too. What will those people say about God? What work will you have destroyed by doing that? You've invested a lot of time and effort into these people. You can't turn on them now. Likewise, notice that uh, that Moses also invokes God's promises to Abraham here. Like, this is a little weaker of an argument, I suspect, because at the end of the day, God has already anticipated this one and come up with another solution, namely, okay, so Moses is in fact a child of Abraham, so presumably, you know, he could also be the, pro the son of promise. Moses says, you know, remember Abraham, remember Isaac and Israel, your servants. You swore you would protect them. You swore you would bless them. Are you really going to turn on that now? In short, Moses reminds God of what God himself has said. This is important because one of the things that, you know, a, a lot of Christians kind of get caught up on is there is this very reverential attitude that Christians adopt towards God. Like they sort of just 
quietly accept whatever God tells them and gives them, it's worth noting that Moses does in fact stand up to God and calls him out when God isn't following his promises, when God has kind of abrogated what God himself has said and done. You can argue God's nature against God is what is being demonstrated here. There is a certain amount of confidence, a certain amount of conviction that Christians can carry into the realm of God, into the realm of prayer, into the way that they interact with God here. You can stand up to God and say, treat me better. Because you have ground to do that. Because God has made these promises. Now, you can't say it and say, because I deserve it. That's absurd. Like, every passage in this Bible emphasizes the undeservedness of, of, of human beings. Like, they do not deserve God's mercy. They do not deserve gentle treatment. They do not deserve kindness from God. Nothing about us deserves or warrants what God has given to us. But everything about God means that we can lean on God's own nature, pit God against himself in some respect, and get what God has promised us. If in fact we suffer, if in fact we are unhappy or uncomfortable or unhealthy or miserable, or if the projects that we are trying to undertake are failing, we can point to God and say, help me, not because of me, but because of you, because of your nature, because you have told me that you would make sure that I am protected, that you would take care of me and guarantee my happiness and survival in some sense. Not necessarily prosperity, it is complicated, not necessarily happiness in the American sense, where it's just, you know, feeling good all the time. God doesn't necessarily make those guarantees. But God is interested in seeing his projects go forward. And if you are working on God's level, then you can petition God and have him help you. This is what Moses is essentially doing here. It's a tricky line to walk. I don't recommend it lightly. But importantly, God can be bargained with in some sense. You can, in fact, debate with God, and God, I suspect, wants to have those debates with you. Faith is in fact what Moses is demonstrating here. Faith well above and beyond what all of the, you know, unfaith of the Israelites are, are showing us. Like, that's what this conflict actually is. This is the unbelief of the Israelites largely pitted against Moses' faith in God. And notice that this is enough to save them. Like, it is pretty easy to see this as a, a sort of like typological Christian moment. To see Moses as basically standing in for Christ here, being the one person interceding for all of these sinners on, you know, God's behalf, using God's own arguments to do that. Um, we can see like the one righteous person standing up for all of the unrighteous unbelievers here. And notice that this also informs us quite a bit about how far Moses has come. Like, can you imagine the Moses who stood before the burning bush and said, you know, I am a stutterer. I could not possibly represent you. I could not possibly, you know, go and convince the Israelites that I am your representative. Now, all of a sudden, we've got the same person standing up to God on behalf of the Israelites and saying, no, you need to keep your promises you need to do what you said you would do like Moses has changed dramatically here Moses is trying to save all of the people of Israel from God's wrath itself and Moses is the only one who theoretically could do it in this case 
But notice that as much as Moses is in fact having a debate with God, it is not his righteousness he is leaning on. It is God's own actions, God's own promises, God's own history that Moses turns against God and does in fact cause God to repent. Now, again, Christians don't like to read this as repentance, God changing his mind. I think that we do need to see it this way in some respect, though. This is how the Bible tells us this goes down. This is how we are informed about this. And notice, this is King James English. Like, this is a Christian interpretation of this passage, as much as it is one that frequently frustrates contemporary Christian efforts to sort of make God out into this, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-anticipating, like, precognitive being who knows that he's going to be convinced by Moses here. This is language of the moment to describe a choice made in the moment. God's mind apparently can be changed. And so can the trajectory of history as well. But notice that as much as Moses does intercede on behalf of the Israelites, when it does come down to punishment, Moses is not sparing. Um, Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, Moses, presumably, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither it is the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Like, I want to emphasize a few things about this passage. There is no indication that Moses is wrong at any one of these steps. Which is, is particularly interesting because the really, like, driving moment here, the truly dramatic episode, is when he breaks the tablets of stone, the laws that, Mo that God gave them. Like, this I find particularly striking because, on the one hand, it seems totally presumptuous on Moses' part. In his wrath, he destroys God's own word. Like, this is the kind of moment that should cause you to gasp. Like, how does Moses justify doing this? Is this, in fact, like a moment of great rage? Like, Moses is out of control? Moses is, you know, beyond the leave of his senses? And yet, Moses knows what has been happening. This isn't shocking to him. He tells Joshua what's happening. Sure, seeing it for himself probably is incredibly upsetting, even traumatizing, especially given all of the work that Moses has done up until this point. But the symbolic gesture is noteworthy and possibly appropriate. He breaks the tablets of the law because essentially they are useless at this point. God has given the law as a gift and Moses breaks the tablets to deny the Israelites that gift. This is also a tricky thing for, our, for us to wrap our heads around. Like, usually we don't think of law in terms of a gift. This, we usually perceive law in terms of punishment. 
But notice that this law represents order. This is God trying to whip the Israelites into shape. This is God giving the Israelites a code that will demonstrate the Israelites' allegiance and, you know, their loyalty to God. The law here is not a law of punishment. It is not, you know, do this or be punished. This is a law that guarantees that the Israelites will be blessed. It is a series of codes that raise them up among the other nations that show them how to be God's chosen people and how God wants them to behave. For Moses to break these tablets is to deny the Israelites that possibility, which is honestly totally appropriate. God nearly destroyed them all. Moses has, in some sense, the right to break these tablets and deny the Israelites their communion with God. This is itself a punishment. This is taking away the gift of the law that they should have been given, that they should have received, but that their behavior no longer warrants. But notice, too, that the actual, like, hard punishment that is here is we break down the golden calf, ground it to powder, and force them to eat it. Like, not just this is destroying a worthwhile object, like a valuable object made of gold, but you have to eat it. You have to take it yourself. You have to devour the iniquity that you have perpetrated. There is something very appropriate about every step of these punishments. Like, again, we might gasp at the destruction of the tablets, might assume that, you know, Moses presumes too much here, but this assumes that the law is something to be held over their heads. Moses assumes that it is a gift, that God is doing something for them by giving them this law, and that they no longer deserve it, no longer are even eligible for the grace of God's law. It's... An interesting thing to wrap one's head around, to sort of think about and dwell on. How can this law be a gift? And yet that's clearly how both God and Moses understand it. But it gets worse. And Moses said unto Aaron, verse 21, What did these people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of them. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Now notice, this is classic evasive maneuvers on Aaron's part. Like, if anything, the logical parallel here is back when, you know, we've got, like, Adam and Eve having eaten the tree, of, or the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, Mo and God is like, hey, Adam, why are you, you know, clothed all of a sudden? And Adam's like, it's that woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Like, you never should have given me the woman. It's all her fault. And when God confronts Eve, she's like, it was the serpent. The serpent told me he told me all this pack of lies and that's why i did it like notice aaron does the same thing here he admits that he is the one who like gave them instructions to give him gold but notice his leading comment it is not you know don't let god be mad at me you know the people it's their fault they said unto me make me gods and then we even get that really passive line at the end so they gave me the gold and i cast it into the fire and somehow this calf came out like i don't know how it happened just i put some gold in this calf came out not my fault like i didn't know what was going on whereas no you know earlier in in verse four 
We literally have, and Aaron received them at their hand and fashioned it into a grave with a graving tool and made a calf out of it. Like, we go from an explicit description that Aaron, you know, has crafted it himself to Aaron denying that part of the process and saying, nope, it just sprang out fully formed, don't know how it happened, must have been some kind of miracle. Have you talked to your god about this? Maybe he was actually behind it the whole time? Like, Aaron totally evades, totally equivocates here. Moses gives him a pass on this one. I'm honestly not entirely sure why this is not going to be the last time that we see Aaron kind of totally screwing up his position. But nonetheless, note, this is just another example of the evil, the evasiveness. It's a great psychological detail as well as sort of emphasizing how just fundamentally selfish everyone in this world really is. That's the trouble here. Like, again, I started this lecture series by emphasizing that, you know, sin, like, when people say that they don't believe in God or they don't believe in the Old Testament, like, Christians jump to the conclusion that they are, like, relentlessly evil, refuse to see the obvious truth in front of them. In some sense, both of these things are true. The Israelites do fail to see the obvious truth in front of them. They are privy to the miracles of God, and yet they deny God's authority over them, even go so far as to do the ridiculous thing of creating an idol and then attributing all of God's activities to that idol, like somehow they were under the Israelites' control the whole time. That is obviously absurd. But at the same time, notice this is to some degree understandable. We've all done this at some point. We are not above this behavior. We have all massaged the truth to make it more flattering to our position from time to time. We have all looked for an easy way out of our responsibilities before God. It is not always obvious what God wants or why it is wrong to do what it is that we are doing. In our minds, we are inclined to rationalize our behavior, both going forward, I want to do this, therefore this is why it's totally okay and that God won't be mad at me about it, but also backward. That's why I did this in the first place. It was totally okay at the time, or I thought it was. Like, maybe I screwed up a little bit, but it really isn't as bad as you're making it out to be. Aaron downplays his own agency in creating the golden calf. He emphasizes it was the Israelites' fault. I had nothing to do with it. And on some level, this is just how everybody behaves. This is understandable. This is how people are wired now that the fall has happened. We are not above this. Like, one of the other things that I frequently see Christians sort of emphasize is that they are constantly looking at the signs of the apocalypse, looking at Revelation and, and sort of emphasizing, you know, all of these people will die because they fail to see what is happening and they fail to read the the book of the law they failed to receive to read uh, revelation and therefore i am prepared for the end but they are not and i think that's ridiculous the what is emphasized in revelation is that all of these people totally fail to recognize that the beast the antichrist is taking over the world and nobody stops that from happening like Yes, maybe there was a rapture, I don't know. What I don't presume is that I'm going to recognize God's actions on earth when they happen. I tend to think, given this situation, I would probably be behaving a lot more like Aaron than I would like Moses. Because that's how I'm wired. 
Like, I tend to think that I'm a pretty good reader of the Bible, that I try and avoid sin whenever possible, that I am, in fact, a faithful Christian, and I am, in fact, doing God's work. But that doesn't stop me from sinning. That doesn't mean that I am immune to all of the classic mistakes that are, you know, frequently occurring in this book. Aaron should know better. Aaron was there at Moses' side when God was unleashing plagues upon Pharaoh. Aaron helped announce these great miracles that God has performed. He knows who God is, if anyone knows. Like, short of Moses, Aaron is the most knowledgeable person about God there is, and he misses it like a champ here, and then defends himself, and then backs it up. He has the decency of being on the right side of history because when Moses comes down, he's like, oh my gosh, yeah, I am totally team God. I'm so sorry that this happened. You know, yes, I wasn't that involved, but nonetheless, I know where, you know, I know where my bread comes from. I know whose team I actually am on. That's the best I can hope for as well. That when in fact the time comes and that my sins are revealed before me, I will in fact apologize, hopefully with more grace than Aaron does, but also that at the end of the day, I will say, yeah, and I'm team Jesus. Yeah, I miss Jesus like a champ when in fact Jesus showed up on earth. Yes, I totally failed to see what God was doing in the world around me. Yes, I failed to recognize sin or deception. Yes, I failed to recognize, you know, the evil that was going on around me. I refused to call it out in the moment. But now that I see that it's evil, now that I have recognized how screwed up that was, yeah, I am still going to sign up for Team Jesus, Team God. That's the best I can hope for. And I honestly think any Christian who presumes to be able to know better, who presumes to be able to see more clearly, is dangerous, is mistaken. If you really believe you can tell all the differences, that you know where sin is coming from and where goodness is coming from, then presumably you wouldn't sin. And presumably you would be able to say unlike first john that i am sinless either that or you're doing it willfully which you know is that really any better like i realize that there's a complicated conversation to be had here one that is kind of at the the core of like kierkegaard's philosophical fragments the difference between sin as sort of complicity in evil versus sin as ignorance but i do think what we're seeing here is sort of a bit of both some of our sins are indeed complicit. We know we are doing wrong and we do it anyway. But I don't think that's the only kind of sin out there. I think we are frequently either like unaware of the sin that we are guilty of, that we are in fact, even with the Bible on our, you know, in our minds, oblivious to a lot of the evil that's going on around us and unaware of the evil that we are doing in other people's lives as well as just the sort of denial of sin, the refusal to see that what I am doing is hurting others, that it is in fact evil, that it is in fact against the biblical truth, that we massage our understanding, our interpretation of the Bible to accommodate whatever sins we really want to commit. We allow this text to say things about other people that aren't being said about us. And that's why Jesus is so quick to call out the hypocrites who, you know, refuse to remove the beam from their own eye while calling out the motes that are in others. 
it is so much more pleasant to judge others than it is to actually take a hard look at what we are doing wrong and stop enabling us to do that wrong. I'm not saying that it is easy. I'm not saying that it is something that is obvious. What I'm saying is that we should be humble enough to recognize that sin is more complicated than just what we know to be wrong and are doing other anyway. That we do that is bad, sure, not denying that, but it is a much more complicated web that we are entrapped in. Aaron probably doesn't think he's doing wrong in this particular moment. Maybe he has some pang of conscience, some, you know, understanding of the fact that he is essentially lying here. But Aaron goes on. He isn't punished. There is no obvious repercussions for his actions or inactions here. Aaron will continue to be a large, upstanding member of society. And if literally number two guy in the entire Jewish order, literally of the people who have seen God, like, personally and seen all of these miracles firsthand, if this number two guy is unaware of his own sin, then what chance do we have? Like, Aaron has way better odds, way better chances of recognizing his own failings than we do. He is well aware of God's power and influence in our lives. We admittedly have that first-hand business that comes about when Jesus gives himself up on the cross. Christians do have a fundamentally different relationship with God than what we are seeing here with Moses and Aaron. But nonetheless, I think the case is pretty comparable. If Aaron doesn't have some access to the Holy Spirit, it seems pretty uncertain why he would be given all of this authority, all of this power. I can't help but think that if Moses is the one with the direct Holy Spirit contact here, then Aaron has seen enough of the Holy Spirit that he should know better in this moment. Therefore, we too will frequently do things that we should know better than to do. Christians also make these mistakes, and anyone who says that they're not is probably being at least a little bit dishonest, making the same exact error that Aaron is making here. Christians screw up regularly. They fail regularly. And the only thing that basically redeems them is God's grace itself. Now notice, we do in fact end up in violence here. Once Moses finishes confronting Aaron, Moses says, uh, when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Now, some of this is really obscure. Uh, that passage about Moses saw the people were naked 
like I don't think anyone knows how to translate that or what the actual like original text was. It, like I've seen multiple different translations try and tackle this and come with wildly different like conclusions, none of which make a great deal of sense. Um, I didn't actually check the Hebrew on this one. I don't think I would be intelligent enough to parse it out if all of these other smarter people than me are unable to do it. Um, all I can tell you is that this doesn't seem especially relevant to our interpretation of this passage, so I guess we can give it a pass. Um, what does seem to be important is we also get some violence here. Moses basically summons his, his allies, says, okay, so who really does believe in God anymore? A bunch of people show up, and they literally kill everybody else. Or so it would seem. Like, 3,000 people are killed today. But notice that in order to be killed, you had to not just, you know, worship the golden calf, which was already stupid, irrational, all the things we've talked about to this point, but also failed the test that Aaron does pass. Like, when Moses says, okay, so who's team God... There are literally a thousand or several thousand people who say, nah, I'm team calf. Like, the sheer absurdity of this. Like, we doubled down even after Moses came back. Even after Aaron jumped ship. Even after all of the Levites are, like, jumping over to Moses' side. We still have people who are like, nah... I'm going to go with the one that we just made yesterday and, like, that Aaron made with his own two hands. That's what saved me from Egypt. Like, at this point, how could you even... How can you even talk to these people anymore? Death seems like the appropriate response. And, I mean, again, like... I've had my conversation on this channel about, like, why it seems to be justified when God, in fact, enacts his wrath on people. This is one of those moments that makes that scene or that philosophical perspective abundantly clear. These people have literally been given the chance so many times and God sees that they are unrepentant. That they refuse to acknowledge God's authority even when they've got all of the evidence in the world to prove otherwise. The stiff-neckedness of the people, what God refers to as their fundamental problem, this is what that stiff-neckedness looks like. This is what it means to truly rebel. To truly violate everything that God has done for you. To just utterly renounce it altogether. They had every chance... And death seems appropriate at this point. What more could be done? And I want to stress that. Like, as much as Christians don't like to confront this, it seems to be the case that as much as, you know, we'd like to talk about the rationality of faith or, you know, you just need to see God's work in your life for yourself and everyone could presumably be saved. And all of this is to some degree true. We need to, as Christians, believe that this is the case, that everyone we encounter could be saved we also need to reckon with the fact that some people just aren't going to be. Like, you could perform a miracle in front of them and they're still going to reject it. This is part of the reality around us. I had a long, like, ten-round conversation with a student of mine last week talking about faith, talking about God, and emphasizing, you know, at the end of the day, the truth of the Bible is unprovable, yes, but the truth of science, the truth of atheism, is equally unprovable. You are, at the end of the day, just going to choose between these things. No matter what you believe, it will be, at the end of the day, irrational. No conviction is rational. Like, I am not a relativist, I am a skeptic. 
I believe that your convictions can, in fact, be grounded in your experience, can, in fact, be grounded in your belief in the Bible, can, in fact, be grounded in your faith in science. But at the end of the day, it will all be faith. Faith in your experience, faith in your interpretation of your experience, faith in your interpretation of the gospel, faith in your interpretation of scientific truth, faith in your rejection of your interpretation of the gospel. Whatever it comes down to, it is still faith. And that's not going to be something that can be convinced rationally. Reason has nothing to do with your underlying presuppositions and convictions. You believe what you believe. And those beliefs can be so entrenched as to be intractable. And if you are, in fact, intractable, if you are, in fact, intractably aligned with the forces of evil in this world, whether they are the enemies of God, as we see here in Exodus 32, or the enemies of humanity in some sort of more broader humanistic sense, that intractability isn't going to go away. And there is a case to be made for an inability to redeem you. There is justice in God's annihilation of certain people. There is appropriateness in God's consignment of those people to hell in the Christian mindset. It is a hard thing to buy, a hard thing to say, a hard thing to believe that there are some people so relentlessly, so impossibly trapped in their own perspective that no amount of conviction, no amount of you know divine intervention will convince them out of it. But this seems to be the case, or else we wouldn't have so many passages, so many biblical statements that these people exist, and that God is just and justified in killing them. It sucks to think that our brothers, our family members, our children could be those people. And yet is an unremittent truth of the Bible that they are all around us. They could very well be the people we care about most. And that sucks. That sucks horribly. Because we do care about them. We can't stop caring about them. We're even told to care about them more. Love your enemies, Jesus tells us. That presumably includes these people. The people who have rejected God altogether. We're still supposed to love them. God still loves them. And yet God kills them. God feels obliged to kill them. God needs to protect the people who do still love and respect and can be saved from them. And notice that's the upshot here. Verse 31, Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people, because they made the calf which Aaron made. And moving on to chapter 33, The Lord said unto Moses, Depart. And go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on him his ornaments. 
For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come on up unto the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do with thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. Now notice a couple of things about this passage. Notice that as much as God has apparently repented of utterly destroying the people of Israel, he doesn't seem terribly convinced at this point. Another act of conviction will be necessary here. Um, God says this people have sinned a great sin, and consequently he intends to devour them, to consume them, like to dwell in their midst and then consume thee in the way. Like, God has basically said at this point, I can't go with you anymore. Like, on the one hand, we've got Moses successfully convincing God not to utterly wipe out the people of Israel. On the other hand, God's very nature, God's very holiness forbids him from being able to do that. So they can't hang out together anymore. Like, God says, all right, I'm bailing on you. Like, yes, I'm going to drive out all of the people from the promised land. You can go in and it will be vacant and you can just take over the place. No must, no fuss. But I'm not going with you. Because if I went with you, my nature, my holiness, would necessitate that I destroy you. This is the friction that now exists between God and his people. They are unable to be reconciled. The original plan was that God was going to dwell in the tabernacle, that he was going to be, like, leading among them and dwelling among them. And that he and the people would essentially be united on this trip. But that is no longer possible because of this golden calf incident. So God's like, all right. I'm going to do all the things I said I would do for you, but I'm not going with you. I will not travel with you. And notice that Moses at one point even says, you know, blot me out of your book before you do this. Like, again, we get a very sort of Jesus parallel here when he says this. If you are not going to forgive the people's sins, then destroy me instead. Blot me out of your book. I will take responsibility for this. Which is pretty hardcore on Moses' part that he's willing to do this, but this is also not acceptable to God. God's response is, I'm going to blot the people out of the book who have sinned, thank you very much, though I appreciate the gesture. God can't handle this sinfulness anymore. He cannot spend time with these people. His holiness forbids it. It is in God's nature to destroy that which opposes him. And since these people have opposed him, he cannot reside among them anymore. He has to basically go to his separate corner. But Moses knows that if he does this, it's over. Like, the, the entire thing is lost. If the people couldn't possibly be faithful to God with God literally among them, how in the heck are they supposed to be faithful to God when he is not among them? So Moses attempts to change God's mind again. Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp. Notice, he takes the tabernacle, the res residence of God, and puts it way far away from the camp so he can talk to God without God, like, consuming the entire people of Israel. And called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up, and stood every man at his tent door, and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended, and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. 
And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me? Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And God said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for thou shalt no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the, of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. I realize there's a lot of King James English to parse here, but what I want to emphasize is we're coming to a bargain here. Moses says, You can't leave us alone on this one. You cannot depart from us. Um, if I have found grace in your sight, which it seems to be pretty clearly the case that you have found that Moses has found grace in God's sight. Like God selected Moses as his messenger. Moses has done all the things that God has asked him to do. Moses has done so faithfully and Moses has not turned from God at any point during this process. As Moses emphasizes, you know my name. You have clearly shown me grace. If I have received that grace, then I'm cashing it in now. Show me who you are. Show me now thy way, the King James says, that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Moses essentially is asking for a favor here. Okay, God, seeing as I have successfully argued your history with you, the stuff that I already knew about you, and seeing as I can trade on the grace that you have shown me, something that Moses also knows about God, because there is plenty of evidence for that. Again, Moses has not changed his strategy here. He is still arguing with God according to God's nature. But Moses says, I don't know enough about you, enough about your nature. Show me who you are. And once I know who you are, then we can have a much better informed conversation about why it is that you can't dwell with these people, how we can possibly fix this. If you trust me, since you have given me such faith and such grace, trust me again now. Give me this favor, and we can go from there. And God agrees. Now notice there's some major repercussions here. Like God's like, all right, if you're going to see me in, you know, my full glory, then we got to like hide you in this rock so you aren't like blasted off the face of the earth by the power of my glory in it. And, and like Moses is like, okay, we, we can do it that way. And this is how that scene unfolds. And the Lord said unto Moses, hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. 
Um, and I will write upon these tables the word that were in the first tables which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount. Neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. So, like, God is like, all right, we're going to do this. I'm going to show myself to you, but you got to protect everybody. Like, they got to, you know, be at the minimum safe distance. Like, keep them on the far side of the mountain so they aren't going to, like, get their faces blasted off by my awesomeness. Um, and in addition, we're going to, like, carve two more tables after the ones that Moses broke, which, again, seems to have been the right choice. God is going to give him a second chance at this one. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. I want to stress this has got to be one of the most important series of verses in the entire Bible, and I have taken great pains to commit the entire thing to memory. Because this is the one place where God tells us who he is. Like, Moses is apparently sitting in this rock, given the first direct glimpse of God he has ever received, despite the fact that he can only apparently look at God's hind parts, because the otherwise full glory of God would be enough to, like, blast Moses into ash or something. And this is what God tells us about himself. This is the essence of who God thinks it is important for us to know. God is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Our first verse shows us many of the positive qualities of God and the positive qualities of God's relationship to us. He is merciful. He is gracious. He gives us things we do not deserve. All the blessings that he bestowed on Abraham, remember, Abraham did not deserve those things. His faith was counted to him for righteousness. That does not mean that faith is righteousness. That doesn't mean that faith deserves this kind of blessing. No, God's mercy, God's graciousness, that's what gives humans these blessings. That's where these things come from. And I want to emphasize this as well. Like, many people consider the God of the Old Testament to be somehow fundamentally disconnected from the God of the New Testament. Like, the Old Testament God is some kind of wrathful monster who, like, delivers punishments to people, whereas the New Testament God is more loving and forgiving and, you know, is embodied by Jesus Christ. This is clearly wrong. Because when God is asked in the Old Testament, who is he? God tells us it's long-suffering, it's gracious, it's merciful. That's the God we're dealing with here. As much as we see God enacting many miracles of wrath here in the Old Testament, it clearly is the case that it is warranted more often than not. And we haven't come to the end of God's various destructive miracles. As much as the ones in Genesis and Exodus are more famous and popular than the ones that we're going to hit in Numbers, there are actually probably as many in Numbers as Genesis and Exodus. Um, so we have not come to the end of God's wrath by any extent of the imagination. But notice that that is secondary. That is the second half of this discussion. 
First is grace. What we should emphasize is the reason why we see so much wrath in the Old Testament is in fact just a hint of the wrath that is warranted here. We see wrath and we are, you know, struck by it. We remark upon it. But if anything, God is withholding his wrath. He is holding back. Considering that this is the same God who flooded the world, destroyed literally all human life on earth, except for a handful of people who were spared, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah looks pretty tame by comparison. God has offered to perform way more destructive acts, has in fact allowed wickedness to thrive all over the world at this point. If anything, the question we should be asking is not, why does God do these destructive things, but why doesn't God do more of them? We have seen how terrible the Israelites, his chosen people, are. How bad they are at worshipping the God they have seen with their own eyes, essentially. We wonder at how foolish it is that they raise up a golden idol and call it God. This is the people who God trusts. These are the best people on earth at this point in time. So just imagine how relentlessly wicked, how relentlessly evil the rest of the world must be. God would be well within his rights to do way more than we ever see in this book. So it is not wrong for us to see God as merciful here. God would be well, well within his rights to do way more destructive acts, to cause way more harm. It is just what those people deserve. So yeah, mercy and grace, these are the primary characteristics of God's being. These betrayals of God are regularly occurring in the ancient world. God is well, well within the limits of his own mercy by just destroying a handful of towns, one Egyptian, you know, empire, and that's it. But notice that we do in fact mention God's holiness as well. On the one hand, he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. But notice that that abundance in goodness and truth is the first hint that we are in fact on the move. We are keeping mercy for thousands on the one hand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but we are also by no means clearing the guilty. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. But God is also good. And God is also true. And where God meets with evil and untruth, God is obliged by his goodness, by his truth, to destroy that evil and untruth. Mercy is the only thing preventing God from wiping out everyone on earth. Mercy is what is keeping God from destroying the children of Israel at this very moment, as God reveals himself to Moses. Mercy and grace is what allows God to perform this to Moses. But notice that this means that we can also trade on this. In the same way that Moses points out God's nature and emphasizes, you know, you have done these things for your people. Why would you turn your back on them now? Moses also turns around God's nature here to emphasize what Moses wants to get done. 
Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. Moses trades on what God has told Moses about God's self. Moses says, Oh, so you're gracious and merciful and long-suffering, eh? Then I guess you should go with us all the same, because it is in your nature to forgive us as much as it is in your nature to destroy us. And this seems to work. God is okay with this. God has said, I am not going to go with you anymore because my very nature would cause me to destroy you, and it would. His goodness, his truth, his, you know, unwillingness to, like, ignore the iniquity unto the fourth generation. This clearly makes the Israelites ineligible for God's patronage and God's, you know, dwelling among them. But God is also merciful and long-suffering and gracious. And Moses says, okay, if you're going to be forgiving, if you are going to be gracious, then forgive us now. God's like, okay. Moses trades on God's character against God's character. God's character is large here. It is good, it is true, but it is also merciful and gracious. These characteristics are, at the very least, in tension with one another. Many of the writers that I've heard who come at uh, Judeo-Christianity from a position of like an atheist or secular mytho mythological perspective usually understand God here as being, you know, a, a reconciliation of extremes. Like they see the, the sort of pre-written Jewish faith as being a God who is both good and evil, who is both, you know, true and untrue, who is all things. I tend to think that that's an exaggeration and certainly does not reflect what the God that we find in the Bible and is therefore purely speculative and assuming a sort of progressive history that I don't necessarily think is warranted. Um, but notice that to some degree there is truth to the idea of this God being a God of contradictions. God has contradictory qualities. He is true and good and holy and refuses to brook untruth, evil, and unholiness. But he is also merciful. And that mercy stands in tension with God's goodness. That mercy contradicts God's goodness to some degree. So I respect those who say, you know, I don't believe the Bible because it's contradictory. Yeah, to some degree it is. God's nature is contradictory. God finds himself stalemated, checkmated by himself. And we as human beings are, if anything, invited to take advantage of this. Moses, in this moment, does take advantage of it. He says, God, it is in your nature to forgive us, so forgive us. And God does. God is called out here. And to some degree, the Christian move that says that, you know, on the one hand, God is just and holy and all of us are sinners and therefore, you know, deserve death. But God has also given us his son, Jesus, who has forgiven our sins, who is the sacrifice for himself. This, to some degree, makes sense given God's nature, given God's nature as both goodness on the one hand and merciful on the other. Some would probably even argue that the God that Moses sees here isn't the God, the Father, who dwells in heaven, but rather that this is the first appearance of Jesus 
on Earth, or at least on Earth since the, you know, Garden of Eden business. In fact, most Christians would argue that all of the appearances of God that we're talking about here in the Pentateuch are, in fact, Jesus and not God the Father in any sense. Like, even John 1.1 emphasizes that the act of creation is itself a Jesus thing and not so much a God the Father thing. I don't presume to speculate. Again, we're trying to read this from the Hebrew perspective more than we are from the Christian perspective. But to some degree, I can see how the two are compatible here. God's nature is to some degree split. He is one God, as we will definitely emphasize here and elsewhere and in Deuteronomy. But that oneness is a oneness in tension with itself, a oneness in conflict with itself. And again, Moses by example here, shows us how to navigate that tension. Presumably because God wants us to know. We are told to appeal to God's forgiveness, and it will, in fact, cause God to overlook our iniquity. Not forever. Obviously, again, God's nature is such that the, that iniquity will not go unremarked upon. And we will get a complicated, systematic approach to how exactly that iniquity balances with God's mercy. Like, we're about to hit Leviticus and all the sacrificial stuff. But this is how it works. You appeal to God's forgiveness, God's graciousness, and God will forgive, and God will give mercy. That doesn't change who God is. It just means that God is bigger than that. Bigger than his own goodness in some respect. Which is kind of a weird thing to wrap one's head around. It is, again, very much at odds with the typical understanding of the philosophical understanding of God. It doesn't even necessarily line up with the medievals, who otherwise I usually respect and consider authoritative on this stuff. The Hebrew understanding of God is illogical, mysterious, complicated. This does mean that we need to wrap our heads around this as much as we wrap our heads around the Latinate terms, God's omnipotence and omniscience, his omnibenevolence. This God is, in some ways, inconsistent, but consistent in his inconsistence. He will consistently break his own rules when called upon to do so. He is someone who can be petitioned, Someone whose mind can be changed, not necessarily because we are more powerful than he is, but because we can pit the nature of God against itself. Because we can cause God to side with one part of his nature over the other part. And Moses shows us how to do this. But notice that there is a cost. As much as Moses does in fact succeed in getting God to repent, not once but twice, here in this passage, notice that God does have a caveat. Behold, I make a covenant, God says in verse 10. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art, uh, thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. 
But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods, thou shalt make thee no molten gods. The feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep. Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, as I commanded thee, in the time of the month of Beeb, for in the month of Beeb thou camest out from Egypt." All that openeth the matrix is mine, and every firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is mine. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb, etc., etc. God points to the Sabbath regulations as well. Six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh thou shalt rest. And there are multiple other laws going along with it. But notice the emphasis here in the early part of this description. God points to his holiness and says, okay... I will travel with you. I will go among you the way that you asked me to. But there are new rules in place. I can no longer trust you. You have failed all of the tests that I have given you. And since we see that leave, being left alone for even a little while will cause you to go a-whoring after other gods, to use our King James English here, I cannot trust you to let the Canaanites dwell in your land to let your children marry the children of other people who do not respect me. Therefore, no covenant will you have with them. There will be no peace for you, in short. Since I cannot trust you around other people with other gods, I cannot trust you to dwell peaceably with those people. And therefore, on the one hand, God is one, still offering, I am going to like drive out all of these people myself so you don't have to fight them to take over the, over the land that I've given you. But on the other hand, God is also saying, you're not going to make peace with them. You have to destroy everything of theirs. You have to wipe their culture off the face of the earth. This is the first glimpse we're getting of the Canaanite genocide, which is going to loom large in the back half of this text. But what I want to emphasize is that here we see the justification for it. God is stressing, you screwed up. And yes, I am showing you mercy. Yes, I am showing you grace. Yes, I am going to forgive you. And I am going to dwell among you and I'm going to make sure that all the blessings that I promised are still going to come to pass. But notice that even though there is forgiveness here, there is still going to be death and there's still going to be evil. God can't fix that in some sense and in fact in order to guarantee that these people are going to be faithful to him god asks them to basically commit genocide they are going to have to wreck the canaanites they are going to have to not make peace with them the peace that they might have enjoyed once upon a time because their wills were strong enough to resist the canaanite temptations that's no longer on the table god's demanding blood here in order to prove their faithfulness to God, they're going to have to prove it by shutting out all of the other people vying for their land. This is non-negotiable. This is the price that these people are going to pay. They have not accepted God's mercy, God's generosity. They have not recognized what God has done for them. 
And as a consequence, God knows that he's not going to be able to trust them around other gods. So every god they encounter, every culture who worships a different god, will have to be destroyed or driven out altogether. No exceptions. Now it's going to get worse. Like, by the time that we hit numbers and the next big failing of the Israelites, we're going to see that this gets ramped up dramatically. God is getting impatient with these people. And again, on the one hand, he does show them mercy. He does show them grace. But notice that this comes at the cost of God's goodness, and to some degree it comes at the cost of the world's goodness. Evil will spring from God's mercy here. That's one of the things that is kind of complicating about this text that I suspect is you know, something that, again, rubs Christians the wrong way and possibly maybe even a little theologically... Uh, how do I put this? A little theologically ambitious on my part? Like, I may be going beyond the bounds of more conservative thought here. God seems to be suggesting that with mercy... The mercy that he is showing to the Israelites, because we are not going with not just plan, you know, A or B, but like plan C or D, the one where he wipes all the Israelites out and starts a new, you know, holy race, starting with Moses as, as the new patriarch. The fact that we didn't do that and that we're not like just going to like let the people go into Israel and, and do things themselves without God's guidance. As much as God is willing to make these concessions, it comes at the cost of some pretty impressive loss of life there is going to be a cost here and a pretty nasty cost at that the israelites are going to have a harder time of it because of this decision now i'm not saying that this is the wrong call i'm not saying that the world is somehow made like decidedly darker by you know this petition to god that does in fact change god's mind but there is a sort of pushback here a cause and effect a reciprocal relationship when mercy comes into the world, goodness does come into the world. But it isn't entirely scot-free, or doesn't seem to be the way that this text describes it. God grants Moses his petition, grants him this mercy. But in doing so, the Israelites are going to have to prove themselves. And in order to prove themselves, a lot of people who might not have had to die in plan A of this version of events may have to die now that we're in plan F. This golden calf incident has repercussions. These people are forgiven, but it doesn't mean that they are not without consequence. Evil has consequences, even when it is forgiven. Even if God doesn't recognize the evil anymore, even if you were considered blameless by God, it doesn't change the fact that you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your actions. And I think this is another thing that Christians don't like to think about, don't like to talk about. Christians love the idea of, I am forgiven for my sins and therefore am done with this entire episode. But that's not how it works. A Christian who, you know, abuses their wife and then repents of it is probably still going to watch their marriage fall apart. And that's appropriate. A Christian who protests, who says, I thought you forgave me, therefore come back, is not behaving in true Christian fashion. They need to examine themselves. 
the relationships, the world, the things that they broke don't get fixed again just because these people have been forgiven. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Or at least that's what Christian theology tends to emphasize. They will go to heaven. And eventually all of this will be made right and God will wipe away all tears and it will all seem like a small and ineffectual thing that has, you know, been dealt with long ago. That forgiveness is far more important than the consequences that still linger from one's sins, from one's misdeeds. But here we see very clearly there are consequences to the Israelites' actions. God does forgive them. But a bunch of people do die right here at the outset. Thousands of people are dead by the end of the Golden Calf incident who would have been alive otherwise. And for that matter, going forward, things are going to be rougher on the Israelites. God is going to be rougher on the Israelites. God forgave them. That doesn't mean that God trusts them. And there is a major distinction between the two here. A person who wrongs you, you should forgive. That is Christian teaching. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily trust them as a consequence. A person who steals money from you, a person who in fact violates your trust, a person who hurts you or your family, you are not obligated as a Christian to immediately open your home to them. Yes, turn the other cheek, Jesus says, and that is an important principle that we should aspire to, absolutely. But that still doesn't change the fact that this person hit you, and you aren't likely to forget about that. Forgive, yes. Forget, not necessarily. Forgiveness is a complicated business, one that we are going to see demonstrated again throughout this entire text. But every effort to simplify it, I think, does injustice to what this Bible is actually saying about these things. Forgiveness doesn't come with a complete blank check. We do complicate that when we get into Jesus and, you know, forgive a person not seven times, but 70 times seven. Absolutely, we should, again, aspire to forgiveness and forgetting, forgiveness and the blank check that goes along with it. But, again, God draws draw a distinction here, and if we are taking God as our example, Old Testament and New Testament God, then we should keep this in mind. God does forgive us. But God is not obligated to cause us to suffer no consequences for our actions. God does continue to visit the iniquity of the father on the son and the grandson and the grand great-grandson and beyond. Four generations will be affected by evil, God tells us. That is part of his nature as well. And as a consequence, the Israelites who screwed up here will for many generations suffer the consequences of what they have done. As we will see, the first generation is going to have its own fair share of problems, and these problems will multiply as those generations too forget God or abrogate his laws or violate his principles. All of this sin does compound, and we live in an era where we are not just suffering from the sins of our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, but are conducting our own sins which will further complicate the lives of our children and their children, and their children. God does not forget. He forgives, he is merciful, and he punishes. Both at the same time in some cases. We are forgiven, we are also suffering the consequences of our actions. These are not incompatible statements. These are what God is. This is what it means to live with a good God and a good world that in fact does push back against the evil we perpetrate on it. 
it is not scot-free forgiveness. Not for us. And if we want anything even close to scot-free forgiveness, then we need to, at the very least, start practicing scot-free forgiveness in our own lives. That, I think, is the message here. Going forward, we are about to embark on by far the most boring book of the entire Bible, or at least in my opinion, it's the most boring book. I don't think I've ever heard anyone make a convincing argument for any of the others, though. Um, we're going to hit Leviticus. And Leviticus is literally wall-to-wall -wall law. Um, and on the one hand, like I've talked about last time, law can occasionally be fascinating. It gives us a lot of insight into who God is and what his nature is and how our practice should be changed. On the other hand, this is mostly sacrificial law and is all very fiddly and frequently repetitive and hopefully we'll be able to make some kind of sense out of it. Um, we have 27 chapters in Leviticus. I plan to tackle it in two sections. Um, so first we're going to take uh, the first 15 chapters roughly leading up to the laws about uncleanness it should cover most of the sacrificial law and lead us up to the day of the atonement. Um, and then we will tackle the second half in the week to come. Um, so for next time, Leviticus 1 to 14, I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.